Section 17 of the Junior Classics, Volume 6, Old Fashioned Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert. The Junior Classics, Volume 6, Old Fashioned Tales. Snapdragons. A Tale of Christmas Eve by Juliana Horatio Ewing Once upon a time, there lived a certain family of the name of Scratch. It has a Russian or Polish look, and yet they most certainly lived in England. They were remarkable for the following peculiarity. They seldom seriously quarreled, but they never agreed about anything. It is hard to say whether it were more painful for their friends to hear them constantly contradicting each other or gratifying to discover that it meant nothing and was only their way. It began with the father and mother. They were a worthy couple, and really attached to each other. They had a habit of contradicting each other's statements and opposing each other's opinions, which, though mutually understood and allowed for in private, was most trying to the bystanders in public. If one related an anecdote, the other would break in with half a dozen corrections of trivial details of no interest or importance to anyone, the speakers included. For instance, suppose the two dining in a strange house, and Mrs. Scratch seated by the host, and contributing to the small talk of the dinner table, thus. Oh yes, very changeable weather indeed. It looked quite promising yesterday morning in town, but it began to rain at noon. A quarter past eleven, my dear. Mr. Scratch's voice would be heard to say from several chairs down, in the corrective tones of a husband and father, and really, my dear, so far from being a promising morning, I must say it looked about as threatening as it well could. Your memory is not always accurate in small matters, my love. But Mrs. Scratch had not been a wife and a mother for fifteen years, to be snuffed out at one snap of the marital snuffers. As Mr. Scratch leaned forward in his chair, she leaned forward in hers, and defended herself across the intervening couples. Why, my dear Mr. Scratch, you said so yourself the weather had not been so promising for a week. What I said, my dear, pardon me, was that the barometer was higher than it had been for a week. But as you might have observed, if these details were in your line, my love, which they are not, the rise was extraordinarily rapid, and there is no sure sign of unsettled weather. But Mrs. Scratch is apt to forget these unimportant trifles he added, with a comprehensive smile around the dinner-table. Her thoughts are very properly absorbed by the more important domestic questions of the nursery. Now I think that's rather unfair on Mr. Scratch's part. Mrs. Scratch would chirp with a smile quite as affable and as general as her husband's. I'm sure he's quite as forgetful and inaccurate as I am, and I don't think my memory is at all a bad one. You forgot the dinner hour when we were going out to dine last week, nevertheless, said Mr. Scratch. And you couldn't help me when I asked you, was the sprightly retort. And I'm sure it's not like you to forget anything about dinner, my dear. The letter was addressed to you, said Mr. Scratch. I sent it to you by Jemima, said Mrs. Scratch. I didn't read it, said Mr. Scratch. Well, you burnt it, said Mrs. Scratch. And as I always say, there's nothing more foolish than burning a letter of invitation before the day, for one is certain to forget. 
I've no doubt you do always say it, Mr. Scratch remarked with a smile. But I certainly never remember to have heard the observation from your lips, my love. Whose memory is involved there? asked Mrs. Scratch triumphantly. And as at this point the ladies rose, Mrs. Scratch had the last word. Indeed, as may be gathered from this conversation, Mrs. Scratch was quite able to defend herself. When she was yet a bride, and young and timid, she used to collapse when Mr. Scratch contradicted her statements and set her story straight in public. Then she hardly ever opened her lips without disappearing under the domestic extinguisher. But in the course of fifteen years, she had learned that Mr. Scratch's bark was a great deal worse than his bite, if indeed he had a bite at all. Thus snubs, that made other people's ears tingle, had no effect whatever on the lady to whom they were addressed, for she knew exactly what they were worth, and had by this time become fairly adept at snapping in return. In the days when she succumbed, she was occasionally unhappy, but now she and her husband understood each other, and, having agreed to differ, they, unfortunately, agreed also to differ in public. Indeed, it was the bystanders who had the worst of it on these occasions. To the worthy couple themselves, the habit had become second nature, and in no way affected the friendly tenor of their domestic relations. They would interfere with each other's conversation, contradicting assertions, and disputing conclusions for a whole evening, and then, when all the world and his wife thought that these ceaseless sparks of bickering must blaze up into a flaming quarrel as soon as they were alone, they would bowl amicably home in a cab, criticizing the friends who were commenting upon them, and as little agreed about the events of the evening as about the details of any other events whatsoever. Yes, the bystanders certainly had the worst of it. Those who were near wished themselves anywhere else, especially when appealed to. Those who were at a distance did not mind so much. A domestic squabble at a certain distance is interesting, like an engagement viewed from a point beyond the range of guns. In such a position, one may some day be placed oneself. Moreover, it gives a touch of excitement to a dull evening to be able to say sotto voce to one's neighbor, Do listen. The scratches are at it again. Their unmarried friends thought a terrible abyss of tyranny and aggravation must lie beneath it all, and bless their stars, they were still single and able to tell a tale their own way. The married ones had more idea of how it really was, and wished in the name of common sense and good taste that Scratch and his wife would not make fools of themselves. So it went on, however, and so, I suppose, it goes on still, for not many bad habits are cured in middle age. On certain questions of comparative speaking, their views were never identical, such as the temperature being hot or cold, things being light or dark, the apple tarts being sweet or sour. So one day, Mr. Scratch came into the room, rubbing his hands and planting himself at the fire, with, Bitterly cold it is today, to be sure. Why, my dear William, said Mrs. Scratch, I'm sure you must have got a cold. I feel fire quite oppressive myself. You were wishing you'd a sealskin jacket yesterday, when it wasn't half as cold as it is today, said Mr. Scratch. My dear William, why the children were shivering the whole day, and the wind was due in the north. Due east, Mrs. Scratch. I know by the smoke, said Mrs. Scratch softly but decidedly. I fancy I can tell an east wind when I feel it, said Mr. Scratch jocosely to the company. I 
told Jemima to look at the weathercock, murmured Mrs. Scratch. I don't care a fig for Jemima, said her husband. On another occasion, Mrs. Scratch and a lady friend were conversing. We met him at the Smiths, a gentleman-like agreeable man, about forty, said Mrs. Scratch, in reference to some matter interesting to both ladies. Not a day over thirty-five, said Mr. Scratch, from behind his newspaper. Why, my dear William, his hair's grey, said Mrs. Scratch. Plenty of men are grey at thirty, said Mr. Scratch. I knew a man who was grey at twenty-five. Well, forty or thirty-five, it doesn't matter much, said Mrs. Scratch, about to resume her narration. Five years matters a good deal to most people at thirty-five, said Mr. Scratch, as he walked towards the door. They would make a remarkable difference to me, I know. And with a jocular air, Mr. Scratch departed, and Mrs. Scratch had the rest of the anecdote her own way. The spirit of contradiction finds a place in most nurseries, though to a very varying degree in different ones. Children snap and snarl by nature, like young puppies, and most of us can remember taking part in some such spirited dialogues as the following. I will. You can't. You shall. I won't. You daren't. I dare. I'll tell Mama. I don't care if you do. It is the part of wise parents to repress these squibs and crackers of juvenile contention, and to enforce that slowly learned lesson that in this world one must often pass over and put up with things and other people, being oneself by no means perfect. Also, that it is a kindness and almost a duty to let people think and say and do things in their own way occasionally. But even if Mr. and Mrs. Scratch had ever thought of teaching all this to their children, it must be confessed that the lesson would not have come with a good grace from either of them, since they snapped and snarled between themselves as much or more than their children in the nursery. The two elders were the leaders in the nursery squabbles. Between these, a boy and a girl, a ceaseless war of words was waged from morning to night, and as neither of them lacked ready wit, and both were in constant practice, the art of snapping was cultivated by them to the highest pitch. It began at breakfast, if not sooner. You've taken my chair. It's not your chair. You know it's the one I like, and it was in my place. How do you know it was in your place? Never mind, I do know. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Suppose I say that it was in my place. You can't, for it wasn't and if I like. Well, was it? I shan't tell you. Ah, that shows it wasn't. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Etc., etc., etc. The direction of their daily walks was a fruitful subject of difference of opinion. Let's go on to the common today, nurse. Oh, don't let's go there. We're always going on the common. I'm sure we're not. We've not been there for ever so long. Oh, what a story. We were there on Wednesday. Let's go down Gypsy Lane. We never go down Gypsy Lane. Why, we're always going down Gypsy Lane, and there's nothing to see there. I don't care. I won't go on the common. And I should go and get Papa to say we're to go down Gypsy Lane. I can run faster than you. That's very sneaking, but I don't care. Papa! Papa! Polly's called me a sneak. No, I didn't, Papa. You did. No, I didn't. I only say it was sneaking of you to say you'd run faster than me and get Papa to say we were going to go down Gypsy Lane. Then you did call him sneaking, said Mr. Scratch. And you're a very naughty, ill-mannered little girl. You're getting very troublesome, Polly. 
and I shall have to send you to school, where you'll be kept in order. Go where your brother wishes at once. For Polly and her brother had reached an age when it was convenient, if possible, to throw the blame of all nursery differences on Polly. In families where domestic discipline is rather fractious than firm, there comes a stage when the girls almost invariably go to the wall, because they will stand snubbing, and the boys will not. Domestic authority, like some other powers, is apt to be magnified on the weaker class. But Mr. Scratch would not always listen even to Harry. If you don't give it me back directly, I'll tell about your eating the two magnum bottoms in the kitchen garden on Sunday, said Master Harry on one occasion. Tell tale tit, your tongue shall be slit, and every dog in the town shall have a little bit, quoted his sister. Ah, you've called me a telltale. Now I'll go and tell Papa. You got into a fine scrape for calling me names the other day. Go then. I don't care. You wouldn't like me to go, I know. You daren't. That's what it is. I dare. Then why don't you? Oh, I'm going, but you'll see what will be the end of it. Polly, however, had her own reasons for remaining stolid, and Harry started. But when he reached the landing, he paused. Mr. Scratch had especially announced that morning that he did not wish to be disturbed, and though he was a favorite, Harry had no desire to invade the dining room at this crisis. So he returned to the nursery and said with a magnanimous air, I don't want to get you into a scrape, Polly. If you beg my pardon, I won't go. <laughs> I'm sure I shan't, said Polly, who was equally well informed as to the position of affairs at headquarters. Go if you dare. I won't if you want me not, said Harry, discreetly waving the question of apologies. But I'd rather you went, said the obdurate Polly. You're always telling tales. Go and tell now if you're not afraid. So Harry went, but at the bottom of the stairs he lingered again, and was meditating how to return with most credit to his dignity, when Polly's face appeared through the banisters, and Polly's sharp tongue goaded him on. Ah, I see you. You're stopping. You dare go. I dare, said Harry, and at last he went. As he turned the handle of the door, Mr. Scratch turned round. Please, Papa, Harry began. Get away with you, cried Mr. Scratch. Didn't I tell you I was not to be disturbed this morning? What an extraordinary... But Harry had shut the door and withdrawn precipitately. Once outside, he returned to the nursery with dignified steps and an air of apparent satisfaction, saying, You're to give me the bricks, please. Who says so? Why, who should say so? Where have I been, pray? I don't know, and I don't care. I've been to Papa. There! Did he say I was to give up the bricks? I've told you. No, you've not. I shan't tell you any more. Then I'll go to Papa and ask. Go by all means. I won't if you tell me truly. I shan't tell you anything. Go and ask if you dare, said Harry, only too glad to have the tables turned. Polly's expedition met with the same fate, and she attempted to cover her retreat in a similar manner. Ah, you didn't tell. I don't believe you asked Papa. Don't you? Very well. Well, did you? Never mind. Etc., etc., etc. Meanwhile, Mr. Scratch scolded Mrs. Scratch for not keeping the children in better order, and Mrs. Scratch said it was quite impossible to do so when Mr. Scratch spoiled Harry as he did and weakened her authority by constant interference. 
Difference of sex gave point to many of these nursery squabbles, as it so often does to domestic broils. Boys will never do what they're asked, Polly would complain. Girls ask such unreasonable things, was Harry's retort. Not half so unreasonable as the things you ask. Ah, that's a different thing. Women have got to do what men tell them, whether it's reasonable or not. No, they've not. At least that's only husbands and wives. All women are inferior animals, said Harry. Try ordering Mama to do what you want and see, said Polly. They've got to give orders, and women have to obey, said Harry, falling back on the general principle. And when I get a wife, I'll take care I make her do what I tell her. But you'll have to obey your husband when you get one. I won't have a husband, and then I can do as I like. Oh, won't you? You'll try to get one. I know. Girls always want to be married. I'm sure I don't know why, said Polly. They must have had enough of men if they have brothers. And so they went on, ad infinitum, with ceaseless arguments that proved nothing and convinced nobody, and a continual stream of contradiction that just fell short of downright quarreling. Indeed, there was a kind of snapping even less near to a dispute than in cases just mentioned. The little scratches, like some other children, were under the unfortunate delusion that it sounds clever to hear little boys and girls snap each other up with smart sayings, and old, as rather vulgar, play upon words such as, I'll give you a Christmas box. Which ear will you have it on? I won't stand it. Pray, take a chair. You shall have it tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. And so if a visitor kindly began to talk to one of the children, another was sure to draw near and take up all the first child's answers, with smart comments and catches that sounded as silly as they were tiresome and impertinent. And as ill-mannered as this was, Mr. and Mrs. Scratch never put a stop to it. Indeed, it was only a caricature what they did themselves. But they often said, We can't think how it is the children are always squabbling. It is wonderful how the state of mind of a whole household is influenced by the heads of it. Mr. Scratch was a very kind master, and Mrs. Scratch was a very kind mistress. And yet their servants lived in perpetual fear of irritability that fell just short of discontent. They jostled each other on the back stairs, said harsh things in the pantry, and kept up a perennial warfare on the subject of the duty of the sexes with the general manservant. They gave warning on the slightest provocation. The very dog was infected by the snapping mania. He was not a brave dog, he was not a vicious dog, and no high breeding sanctioned his pretensions to arrogance. But, like his owners, he had contracted a bad habit, a trick which made him the pest of all timid visitors, and indeed of all visitors whatsoever. The moment anyone approached the house, on certain occasions when he was spoken to, and often in no traceable connection with any cause at all, Snap, the mongrel, would rush out and bark in his little sharp voice, Yep! 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 If the visitor made a stand, he would bound away sideways on his four little legs, but the moment the visitor went on his way again, Snap was at his heels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He barked at the milkman, the butcher's boy, and the baker, though he saw them every day. He never got used to the washerwoman, and she never got used to him. She said he put her in mind that their black dog in the pilgrim's progress. He sat at the gate in summer, and yapped at every vehicle and every pedestrian who ventured to pass on the high road. 
he never but once had the chance of barking at burglars. And then, though he barked long and loud, nobody got up, for they said, it's only Snap's way. The Scratches lost a silver teapot, a silton cheese, and two electro-christening mugs on this occasion. And Mr. and Mrs. Scratch dispute who it was who discouraged reliance on Snap's warning to present day. One Christmas time, a certain hot-tempered gentleman came to visit the Scratches. A tall, sandy, energetic young man who carried his own bag from the railway. The bag had been crammed rather than packed after the want of bachelors, and you could see where the heel of a boot distended the leather and where the bottle of shaving cream lay. As he came up to the house, out came Snap as usual. Yep! 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 Now the gentleman was very fond of dogs, and had borne this greeting some dozen times from Snap, who for his part knew the visitor quite as well as the washerwoman, and rather better than the butcher's boy. The gentleman had good, sensible, well-behaved dogs of his own, and was greatly disgusted with Snap's conduct. Nevertheless, he spoke kindly to him, and Snap, who had had many a bit from his plate, could not help stopping for a minute to lick his hand. But no sooner did the gentleman proceed on his way than Snap flew at his heels in the usual fashion. Yap! 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 On which the gentleman, being a hot-tempered, and one of those people with whom it is, as they say, a word and a blow, and the blow first, made a dash at Snap. And Snap, taking to his heels, the gentleman flung his carpet bag after him. The bottle of shaving cream hit upon a stone and was smashed. The heel of the boot caught Snap on the back and sent him squealing to the kitchen, and he never barked at the gentleman again. If the gentleman disapproved of the Snap's conduct, he still less liked the continual snapping of the Scratch family themselves. He was an old friend of Mr. and Mrs. Scratch, however, and knew that they were really happy together, and that it was only a bad habit which made them constantly contradict each other. It was in allusion to their real affection for each other and their perpetual disputing that he called them the Snapping Turtles. When the war of words waxed hottest at the dinner table between his host and hostess, he would drive his hands through his shock of sandy hair and say with a comical glance out of his umber eyes, Don't flirt, my friends. It makes a bachelor feel awkward. And neither Mr. nor Mrs. Scratch could help laughing. With the little scratches, his measures were more vigorous, he was very fond of children, and a good friend to them. He grudged no time or trouble to help them in their games and projects, but he would not tolerate their snapping up each other's words in his presence. He was much more truly kind than many visitors, who think it polite to smile at the sauciness and forwardness which ignorant vanity leads children so often to show off before strangers. These civil acquaintances only abuse both children and parents behind their backs, for the very bad habits which they helped to encourage. The hot-tempered gentleman's treatment of his young friends was very different. One day he was talking to Polly and making some inquiries about her lessons, to which she was replying in a quiet and sensible fashion, when up came Master Harry and began to display his wit by comments on the conversation, and by snapping at and contradicting his sister's remarks, to which she retorted, and the usual snap dialogue went on as usual. Then you like the music? said the hot-tempered gentleman. Yes, I like it very much, said Polly. Oh, do you? Harry broke in. And what are you always crying over it for? I'm not always crying over it. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I only cry sometimes when I stick fast. 
Your music must be very sticky, for you're always stuck fast. Hold your tongue, said the hot-tempered gentleman. With what he imagined to be a very waggish air, Harry put out his tongue and held it with his finger and thumb. It was unfortunate that he had not time to draw it in before the hot-tempered gentleman gave him a stinging box on the ear, which brought his teeth rather sharply together on the tip of his tongue, which was bitten in consequence. It's no use speaking, said the hot-tempered gentleman, driving his hands through his hair. Children are like dogs. They are very good judges of their real friends. Harry did not like the hot-tempered gentleman a bit the less, because he was obliged to respect and obey him. And all the children welcomed him boisterously, when he arrived that Christmas which we have spoken of in connection with his attack on Snap. It was on the morning of Christmas Eve that the china punch bowl was broken. Mr. Scratch had a warm dispute with Mrs. Scratch as to whether it had been kept in a safe place, after which both had a brisk encounter with the housemaid, who did not know how it happened, and she, flouncing down the back passage, kicked Snap, who forthwith flew at the gardener as he was bringing in the horseradish for the beef, who, stepping backwards, trod upon the cat, who spit and swore, and went up the pump with her tail as big as a fox's brush. To avoid this domestic scene, the hot-tempered gentleman withdrew to the breakfast room and took up a newspaper. By and by, Harry and Polly came in, and they were soon snapping comfortably over their own affairs in a corner. The hot-tempered gentleman's umber eyes had been looking over the top of his newspaper at them for some time before he called, Harry, my boy! And Harry came up to him. Show me your tongue, Harry, said he. What for? said Harry. You're not a doctor. Do as I tell you, said the hot-tempered gentleman. And as Harry saw his hand moving, he put his tongue out with all possible haste. The hot-tempered gentleman sighed. Ah, he said in depressed tones. I thought so. Polly, come and let me look at yours. Polly, who had crept up during the process, now put out hers. But the hot-tempered gentleman looked gloomier still and shook his head. What is it? cried both the children. What do you mean? And they seized the tips of their tongues and their fingers to feel for themselves. But the hot-tempered gentleman went slowly out of the room without answering, passing his hands through his hair, saying, Ah, hum, and nodding with an air of grave foreboding. Just as he crossed the threshold, he turned back and put his head into the room. Have you ever noticed that your tongues are going pointed? he asked. No, cried the children with alarm. Are they? If ever you find them becoming forked, said the gentleman in solemn tones, let me know. With which he departed, gravely shaking his head. In the afternoon, the children attacked him again. Do tell us what's the matter with our tongues. You were snapping and squabbling just as usual this morning, said the hot-tempered gentleman. Well, we forgot, said Polly. We don't mean anything, you know, but never mind that now, please. Tell us about our tongues. What is going to happen to them? I'm very much afraid, said the hot-tempered gentleman in solemn, measured tones, that you are both of you fast going to the... Dogs? suggested Harry, who was learned in cant expressions. Dogs, said the hot-tempered gentleman, driving his hand through his hair. Bless your life, no. Nothing half so pleasant. That is, unless all dogs were like Snap, which mercifully they are not. No, my sad fear is that you are both of you rapidly going to the Snapdragons. And not another word will the hot-tempered gentleman say on the subject. In the course of a few hours, Mr. and Mrs. Scratch recovered their equanimity. The punch was brewed in a jug, and tasted quite as good as usual. The evening was very lively. There were a Christmas tree, 
Yule Cakes, Log, and Candles, Firmity, and Snapdragon after supper. When the company were tired of the tree and had gained an appetite by the hard exercise of stretching to high branches, blowing out dangerous tapers, and cutting ribbon and pack threads in all directions, supper came with its welcome cakes and firmity and punch. And when firmity somewhat palled upon the taste, and it must be admitted to boast more sentiment than flavor as a Christmas dish, the Yule candles were blown out, and both the spirits and the palates of the party were stimulated by the mysterious and pungent pleasures of Snapdragon. Then as the hot-tempered gentleman warmed his coat-tails at the Yule log, a grim smile stole over his features as he listened to the sounds in the room. In the darkness, the blue flames leaped and danced. The raisins were snapped and snatched from hand to hand, scattering fragments of flame hither and thither. The children shouted as the fiery sweetmeats burnt away the mawkish taste of the firmity. Mr. Scratch cried that they were spoiling the carpet. Mrs. Scratch complained that he had spilled some brandy on her dress. Mr. Scratch retorted that she should not wear dresses so susceptible of damage in the family circle. Mrs. Scratch recalled an old speech of Mr. Scratch on the subject of wearing one's nice things for the benefit of one's family and not reserving them for visitors. Mr. Scratch remembered that Mrs. Scratch's excuse for buying that particular dress when she did not need it was her intention of keeping it for the next year. The children disputed as to the credit for courage and the amount of raisins due to each. Snap barked furiously at the flames, and the maids hustled each other for good places in the doorway, and would not have allowed the manservants to see at all, but he looked over their heads. Sit, sit, edit, edit, chuckled the hot-tempered gentleman in undertones. And when he said this, it seemed as if the voices of Mr. and Mrs. Scratch rose higher in matrimonial repartee, and the children's squabbles became louder, and the dog yelped as if it were mad, and the maid's contest was sharper, whilst the snapdragon flames leaped up and up, and blue fire flew about the room like foam. At last the raisins were finished, the flames were all put out, and the company withdrew to the drawing room. Only Harry lingered. Come along, Harry, said the hot-tempered gentleman. Wait a minute, said Harry. You'd better come, said the gentleman. Why, said Harry. There's nothing to stop for. The raisins are eaten, the brandy is burnt out. No, it's not, said Harry. Well, almost. It would be better if it were quite out. Now come, it's dangerous for a boy like you to be alone with the snapdragons tonight. Fiddlesticks, said Harry. Go your own way, then said the hot-tempered gentleman, and he bounced out of the room, and Harry was left alone. He crept up to the table, where one little pale blue flame flickered in the snapdragon dish. What a pity it should go out, said Harry. At this moment, the brandy bottle on the sideboard caught his eye. Just a little more, murmured Harry to himself, and he uncorked the bottle and poured a little brandy onto the flame. Now, of course, as soon as the brandy bottle touched the fire, all the brandy in the bottle blazed up at once, and the bottle split to pieces. And it was very fortunate for Harry that he did not get seriously hurt. A little of the hot brandy did get into his eyes, and made them smart, so that he had to shut them for a few seconds. But when he opened them again, what a sight he saw! All over the room the blue flames leaped and danced, as they had leaped and danced in the soup plate with the raisins. And Harry saw that each successive flame was the fold in the long body of a bright blue dragon, which moved like the body of a snake. And the room was full of these dragons. In the face they were like the dragons one sees made of very old blue and white china, 
and they had forked tongues like the tongues of serpents. They were most beautiful in color, being sky blue. Lobsters who have just changed their coats are very handsome, but the violet and indigo of a lobster's coat is nothing compared to the brilliant sky blue of a snapdragon. How they leaped about! They were forever leaping over each other like seals at play. But if it was play at all with them, it was of a very rough kind, for as they jumped, they snapped and barked at each other. And their barking was like that of the barking new in the zoological gardens. They tore the hair out of each other's heads with their claws and scattered it about the floor. And as it dropped, it was like the flecks of flame people shake from their fingers when they are eating snapdragon raisins. Harry stood aghast. What fun, said a voice close by him, and he saw that one of the dragons was lying near and not joining in the game. He had lost one of the forks of his tongue by accident and could not bark for a while. Glad you think it funny, said Harry. I don't. That's right, snap away, sneered the dragon. You're a perfect treasure. They'll take you in with the third round. Not those creatures, cried Harry. Yes, those creatures. If I hadn't lost my bark, I'd be the first to lead you off, said the dragon. Oh, the game will exactly suit you. What is it, please? Harry asked. You'd better not say please to the others, said the dragon, if you don't want to have all your hair pulled out. The game is this. You have always to be jumping over somebody else, and you must either talk or bark. If anybody speaks to you, you must snap in return. I need not explain what snapping is. You know. If anyone by accident gives a civil answer, a clawful of his hair is torn out of his head to stimulate his brain. Nothing can be funnier. I dare say it suits you capitally, said Harry, but I'm sure we shouldn't like it. I mean, men, women, and children. It wouldn't do for us at all. Wouldn't it? said the dragon. You don't know how many human beings dance with dragons on Christmas Eve. If we are kept in a house till after midnight, we can pull people out of their beds and take them to dance in Vesuvius. Vesuvius? cried Harry. Yes, Vesuvius. We come from Italy originally, you know. Our skins are the color of the Bay of Naples. We live on dry grapes and ardent spirits. We have glorious fun in the mountains sometimes. Oh, what snapping and scratching and tearing! Delicious! There are times when the squabbling becomes too great, and Mother Mountain won't stand it, and spits us all out and throws cinders after us. But this is only at times. We had a charming meeting last year. So many human beings and how they can snap. We always have plenty of saucy children and servants. Husbands and wives, too, and quite as many of the former as the latter, if not more. But besides these, we had two vestrymen, a country postmaster who devoted his talents to insulting the public instead of learning the postal regulations, three cabmen and two fairs, two young shop girls from a Berlin wool shop in a town where there was no competition, four commercial travelers, six landladies, six old Bailey lawyers, several widows from almhouses, seven single gentlemen, and nine cats who swore at everything a dozen sulfur-colored screaming cockatoos, a lot of street children from a town, a pack of mongrel curs from the colonies who snapped the human beings' heels, and five elderly ladies in their Sunday bonnets with prayer books who had been fighting for good seats in church. Dear me, said Harry, 
You can find nothing sharper to say than, Dear me, said the dragon. You will fare badly, I can tell you. Well, I thought you'd a sharp tongue, but it's not forked yet, I see. Here they are, however. Off with you. And if you value your curls, snap. And before Harry could reply, the snapdragons came on their third round, and as they passed, they swept Harry with them. He shuddered as he looked at his companions. They were as transparent as shrimps, but of this lovely cerulean blue. And as they leaped, they barked, hoof, hoof, like barking news. And when they leaped, Harry had to leap with them. Besides barking, they snapped and wrangled with each other. And in this, Harry must join also. Pleasant, isn't it? said one of the blue dragons. Not at all, snapped Harry. That's your bad taste, snapped the blue dragon. No, it's not, snapped Harry. Then it's pride and perverseness. You want your hair combing. Oh, please don't, shrieked Harry, forgetting himself, on which the dragon clawed a handful of hair out of his head, and Harry screamed, and the blue dragons barked and danced. That made your hair curl, didn't it? asked another dragon, leaping over Harry. That's no business of yours, Harry snapped, as well as he could for crying. It's more my pleasure than business, retorted the dragon. Keep it to yourself, then, snapped Harry. I mean to share it with you when I get a hold of your hair, snapped the dragon. Wait till you get the chance, Harry snapped with desperate presence of mind. Do you know whom you're talking to? roared the dragon, and he opened his mouth from ear to ear and shot out his forked tongue in Harry's face. And the boy was so frightened that he forgot to snap and cried piteously. Oh, I beg your pardon, please don't! On which the blue dragon clawed another handful of hair out of his head, and all the dragons barked as before. How long the dreadful game went on, Harry never exactly knew. Well practiced as he was in snapping in the nursery, he often failed to think of a retort, and paid for his unreadiness by the loss of his hair. Oh, how foolish and wearisome all this rudeness and snapping now seemed to him. But on he had to go, wondering all the time how near it was to twelve o'clock, and whether the snapdragons would stay till midnight and take him with them to Vesuvius. At last, to his joy, it became evident that the brandy was coming to an end. The dragons moved slower, they could not leap so high, and at last, one after another, they began to go out. Oh, if they only all of them get away before twelve, thought poor Harry. At last, there was only one. He and Harry jumped about and snapped and barked, and Harry was thinking with joy that he was the last, when the clock in the hall gave that whirring sound which clocks do before they strike, as if it were clearing its throat. Oh, please go, screamed Harry in despair. The blue dragon leaped up and took such a clawful of hair out of the boy's head that it seemed as if part of the skin went too, but that leap was his last. He went out at once, vanishing before the first stroke of twelve and Harry was left on his face in the darkness. When his friends found him, there was blood on his forehead. Harry thought it was where the dragon had clawed him, but they said it was a cut from a fragment of the broken brandy bottle. The dragons had disappeared as completely as the brandy. Harry was cured of snapping. He had had quite enough of it for a lifetime, and the catch-contradictions of the household now made him shudder. Polly had not the benefit of his experiences, and yet she improved also. In the first place, snapping, like other kinds of quarreling, requires two parties to it, and Harry would never be a party to snapping any more. And when he gave civil and kind answers to Polly's smart speeches, she felt ashamed of herself and did not repeat them. In the second place, she learned about the snapdragons. Harry told her all about it, 
and to the hot-tempered gentleman. Now do you think it's true? Polly asked the hot-tempered gentleman. Ah, <laughs> said he, driving his hand through his hair. You know I warned you you were going to the Snapdragons. Harry and Polly snubbed the little ones when they snapped, and utterly discountenanced snapping in the nursery. The example and admonitions of elder children are a powerful instrument of nursery discipline. And before long, there was not a sharp tongue among all the little scratches. But I doubt if the parents were ever cured. I don't know if they heard the story. Besides, bad habits are not easily cured when one is old. I fear Mr. and Mrs. Scratch have yet got to dance with the dragons. End of section 17